Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our news editor Nick Bostock to talk about the latest news affecting primary care. This week, GP Online has launched its new GP Insight data tool, and our first project is a GP workforce tracker. Nick and I will be looking at some of the data in the tracker and what this tells us about the GP workforce in different parts of England. We're also talking about a recently published study that highlights the impact that poor GP retention has on patients and the wider NHS. And we'll be discussing the government's latest plans for the NHS. Finally, our good news story is about a long-serving GP who overcame severe COVID and inspired a local folk band to write a song about him. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, this week GP Online launched our new GP Insight data tool. As part of this, we'll be looking at data relating to general practice and primary care in much more detail. We hope this will help GPs, healthcare professionals and others to understand their local NHS area and how it compares to other parts of the country. Our first project is our GP Workforce Tracker, which analyses data about key issues related to the GP workforce and presents this at both Integrated Care Board and Primary Care Network level in interactive maps, tables and charts allowing readers to explore this information in more detail. The tracker, which will be updated twice a year, looks at the numbers of patients per GP, the proportion of GPs who are partners, CQC ratings, patient satisfaction, and the number of appointments delivered per patient. These are all issues related to the workforce or linked to the workforce. Our overall ranking table shows how each of England's 42 ICBs ranks compared to others on each of these measures. Each integrated care board also has a page on GP Online exploring the data for that area in more detail, as well as providing data for each of the five measures for every PCN in that area. Throughout this week on the website, we've been looking at some aspects of the data from the tool in more detail. So Nick, the first thing we looked at was variation across ICBs in terms of the number of patients per GP. What did the data tell us? What the figures show is just how significant the variation is across England's 42 integrated care boards, ICBs, in terms of how many patients each GP has to look after. We know there's a shortage of GPs nationally, but the impact of that isn't evenly spread across the country. And this is why we talk about some areas being underdoctored. These are areas where the shortage of GPs is particularly acute, meaning there are much larger numbers of patients per GP on average. There are just under 2,250 patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP nationally, and that's a figure that has risen by around 4% over the past couple of years alone. But the gap between ICBs with the highest and lowest numbers of patients per GP are really big. Kenton Medway ICB in Southeast England, for example, has more patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP than anywhere else, with nearly 2,700 patients for each GP. That's around 800 more than in Gloucestershire ICB in Southwest England, which has the lowest number of patients per GP with just under 1,900. So there's a 43% difference in terms of the number of patients each GP has to look after in the most underdoctored area compared with the least underdoctored area. There's also some really significant differences within ICBs when you start looking at the workforce data at a PCN level, isn't there? Yeah. So with the workforce tracker tool we've, we've put together, you can look at how numbers of patients per GP vary at PCN level within each of the ICB areas. And the more you drill down to local level, the wider the variation becomes. At a a really zoomed out level, variation between ICBs 
is still fairly large. But we know from previous analysis that when it came to CCGs, which have now been phased out, but were roughly half or maybe a third of the size of ICBs, the variation was larger. Some CCGs had twice as many patients per GP as others, for example. Uh, And when it comes to PCNs, the extremes are even more pronounced. So one PCN in Peterborough seems to have more than 10 times as many patients per GP, over 13,000, than the PCN with the least patients per GP, which has just over 1,000. I mean, those are outliers. If you if you strip out those outliers by looking at the gap between the top 10% and the bottom 10%, for example, the gap is still really large. So there are around 120 PCNs at one end of the scale with around 3,200 patients per GP or more. And at the other end, there are about 120, so the 10% bottom end of the of the scale of PCNs, with roughly 1,700 or fewer patients per GP. So it's a big difference between the, uh, the top 10% and the bottom 10%. We're talking about under-doctored areas, and we know we're short of at least 6,000 GPs across England. So the whole country really is basically under-doctored. But as you've been talking about, this data highlights that some areas are significantly more underdoctored than others. You've been speaking to some people about some of the reasons why some parts of the country are more underdoctored. What did you find out there? Factors that, that feed into areas becoming or remaining underdoctored may vary across the country to some extent, but ultimately funding is a huge part of creating a vicious cycle in some areas that's really hard to break out of. Professor Camilla Hawthorne, the the chair of the RCGP, said in a blog for us this week that practices in in deprived areas receive 7% less funding, have smaller workforces, 10% higher workloads and greater numbers of patients with complex health needs. And the Health Foundation has said that the current GP funding formula effectively perpetuates inequality by failing adequately to recognise deprivation as a significant contributor to GP workload. You've heard of the inverse care law. That was the term coined by a GP called Julian Tudor Hart just over 50 years ago to describe how people who most need health care are least likely to receive it. He said that in the 70s, but the rule clearly still applies to general practice now. Variation in how well-funded different areas are means some have or have had more funding available to commission enhanced services from GP practices, for example. That can mean practices receive more funding, and it can also contribute to job satisfaction, for example, by allowing GPs to spend some time doing something different, doing some minor surgery or something along those lines. Um, Another factor is that areas with less money historically are less likely to have invested in improvements to premises. So the working environment and potentially the buildings that new partners might be asked to buy into can be less attractive. Factors like not having a medical school anywhere near your area can have an effect too. So doctors can often be tempted to work somewhere near where they trained. And if if there isn't a medical school anywhere near your area, then potentially it's more difficult to bring people in. Then there are factors like the impact of large numbers of uh, practice mergers or closures in an area and the loss of um, experienced senior GPs who may be replaced by less experienced newer GPs. And all that can contribute to reduced capacity in general practice, potentially in ways that don't really show up all that clearly in the statistics. So underfunding can mean all these factors heaped on top of each other, harder work with fewer colleagues and worse premises, potentially for less income. And as a result, persuading GPs to come and join the workforce in these areas can be increasingly difficult. 
You've also been looking at how things have changed over time. So areas where the numbers of patients per GP is rising fastest, this could be because we're losing GPs faster in those areas, or maybe because the population is growing more quickly there and healthcare hasn't, the NHS hasn't been able to keep up. What did you find out about that? Naturally, there's been a rapid rise in the number of patients per average GP over recent years. Like you say, that's it's partly because of a fall in the, the GP workforce and, and also because of an increase in the total number of patients registered with GP practices. But in September 2015, when the government was promising to add 5,000 GPs to the workforce by the end of that decade, uh, which obviously didn't happen, there were 1,938 patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP in England as a whole. So by last September there were 2,240-odd patients per GP, so about a 15% rise in seven years. And over the past two years alone, patients per GP are up around 4%, as we mentioned before. Some areas, though, have seen much, much bigger increases than that. A couple of ICBs have seen increases of more than 10% in the number of patients each of their GPs is responsible for in just the last two years. And the figure is heading in the wrong direction in the vast majority of areas. The fastest growth at ICB level in patients per GP was actually in an area with a low number of patients per GP in Dorset. So it's an area that's not underdoctored. But we also found that some areas that are already underdoctored are actually getting worse quite quickly too. The GP Insight tool, you can actually see at the bottom of each ICP page, we look at how the number of patients per GP has changed over the last three years. So it's possible to kind of look at that and see trends in your area as well. Of course, one of the other things the trackers looked at is the proportion of GPs who are partners in each ICB and PCN. We've talked a lot on the podcast in the past about the falling number of GP partners and the impact this has had. Does the workforce tracker suggest that some parts of the country are faring better than others in terms of the proportion of workforce that are partners? There's significant variation between areas. And again, that variation is greater at PCN level than at ICB level. Just looking at ICBs, in some places, more than two-thirds of the full-time equivalent GP workforce is made up of partners, whereas in other areas, that falls to just half. And the significance of that is that in areas where it's harder to attract partners, the future of practices is at risk, or maybe at risk. Uh, If GPs can't be brought in to take on the running of practices as existing partners retire, there's obviously an increased risk of practices merging or closing along with all the disruption for patients that that can bring. And the RTGP spoke earlier this year about the exceptional benefits that the GP partnership model brings for the NHS. There's an argument that it's only because of the flexibility and ability to respond to changing demand and circumstances that partnerships offer that's allowed general practice to continue to operate in the face of record pressure over recent years. So for those areas with lower proportions of partners, that may be an important warning sign about the general health of their general practice workforce. We've had some responses from the BMA and RCGP on all of this, haven't we? What did they have to say? The BMA said that the figures we've reported were evidence of the worsening workforce crisis in general practice. And they talked about the fact that rising demand and fewer staff to cope with that demand is driving up waiting times for patients and burnout for doctors. The BMA also talked about the need to do more to retain existing GPs, as well as looking to bring in new recruits. And the key there is around sorting out underfunding, reversing pay cuts, uh, removing tax penalties around pensions that have fueled the workforce crisis and tackling bureaucracy as well as that. And the RCGP said general practice is at breaking point. There's a blog from the RCGP chair, Professor Camilla Hawthorne, as I mentioned earlier, on our website on this 
And ultimately, the RCGP says the government needs to step in as a matter of urgency to rescue general practice. Um, they want to plan for increased funding, measures to tackle unsustainable workload and understaffing. And they've called for a plan that actually goes well beyond the promise of 6,000 extra GPs that was in the last uh, Conservative manifesto. What's the government had to say about that? For its part, the government says it's working with NHS England and Higher Education England to grow the GP workforce by boosting recruitment, addressing the reasons why doctors leave the profession and encouraging them to return to practice. The government mentioned the the targeted enhanced recruitment scheme, TERS, which offers incentives to bring trainees into areas that are hard to recruit to. And there are also schemes such as the New to Partnership scheme, which offers golden hellos to first-time GP partners. The spokesperson, though, said that the number of doctors in general practice, and that's in inverted commas, had risen over the past year. We've been over more than once on the podcast previously. That's a claim that relies on counting GP trainees who are not able to practice independently in general practice. And that's why earlier in the podcast, I've used the term fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs to talk about the workforce as a measure that doesn't count trainees because they're not yet fully qualified GPs. And that number, unfortunately, is falling rather than rising. Moving away from GP insight, but very much in the in the same topic, you wrote a story last week that showed the impact the GP workforce crisis uh, and poor retention in particular can have on patients and the wider NHS So this is about a study by researchers at the University of Manchester that was published in the BMJ's Quality and Safety Journal. Can you just talk a little bit about what that study found? Researchers have found that high turnover of GPs within practices is linked to worse services and outcomes for patients. And they found some sort of characteristics of practices that are more likely to be affected by what's called persistent high turnover. So basically, practices that are larger, uh, located in more deprived areas, and with a higher health burden from serious chronic conditions are more likely to be affected by this. The definition of uh, persistent high turnover is more than 10% of the GPs in a practice changing for three years in a row. This is a University of Manchester study. They found that the proportion of practices that had experienced persistent high turnover had more than doubled in the decade to 2019. So if you look at 2007, 2008, 2009, 2.7% of GP practices faced persistent high turnover in that three-year period. Fast forward by a decade to 2017 to 2019, 6.3% of practices experienced persistent high turnover. So it's more than double. You know, the, the impact of this, like I said, is it linked to worse services and outcomes, Practices that are affected by this are associated with 1.8% more emergency hospital attendances per 100 registered patients, basically fewer patients able to see their preferred doctor, significantly lower proportion of people able to obtain same-day appointments, and more people having lower overall satisfaction with their GP practice. This is kind of tied in to the stuff that we're, we're talking about with underdoctored areas, areas where they're struggling to retain GPs, where you're seeing a faster turnover of practices, you know, as this research shows, is, is very much linked to the kind of service. I mean, it's, it's unsurprising in some ways, but it's, it's good to have the proof of it. This is linked to the services that practices are able to provide and the quality of those. 
All of this does add weight to many of those people's arguments that the funding formula for general practice, like you were talking about earlier, does need to be looked at really. And you know, questions need to be asked about whether it adequately takes account of things like deprivation, because as you mentioned there, a lot of those practices are in more deprived areas and have higher burden of disease and people are experiencing worse outcomes. Thanks very much, Nick. I just wanted to point out that a huge amount of work has gone into this project. So if you'd like to take a look at what we've been up to with GP Insight, you can visit gponline.com and click on GP Insight in the top navigation of the website. We'll also put a link to it in the description for this episode. So Emma, um, this week, the uh, government set out more detailed plans about how it's hoping to tackle the crisis in urgent and emergency care. And that could impact on GPs. So what's the government and NHS England planning? Yes. So on the last news podcast a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that initial plan from Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, which involved £250 million of funding to help speed up discharge from hospitals. And there was some real concern that that could potentially put more pressure on overstretched practices if people needed ongoing support, basically, after they'd been discharged. So this week, Health and Social Care Secretary Steve Barclay has announced a new urgent and emergency care plan aimed at reducing waiting times and improving care. So it might sound like the same thing, but this is basically a longer term plan than what we were talking about on the last podcast. So that last initiative was focused on dealing with the immediate challenges that we've seen over the past couple of months and and trying to reduce the problems that, that people are experiencing right now. Whereas this plan that Steve Barclay announced this week is looking ahead to make sure we don't get into that predicament again next year and beyond. So it's a joint plan by the government and NHS England various uh, you know aims and objectives as as these plans do it talks about increasing capacity so we're talking about 5000 extra beds in hospitals 800 more ambulances which will include actually this is quite interesting 100 specialist mental health ambulances so that's quite a new thing it talks about growing the workforce by getting retired clinicians to come back and work in NHS 111 and introducing the use of emergency medical technicians to support ambulances workers it's really not very clear where the staff are, are going to be coming from to manage those extra 5,000 beds or how that's going to work. It also reiterates the importance of speeding up hospital discharges and there's some measures around that. And there's also a big thing about NHS 111 and, and the aim for that to become the first port of call for people, which NHS England says could help cut the need for people to go to A&E. So there could be some really big changes there. NHS England is apparently going to undertake a, a huge review of 111 services and how they fit into urgent and emergency care as well as primary care. They're going to be looking at things like AI and how machine learning can be incorporated into 111. So that could be a really big change. But for general practice, I guess the areas we're most interested in are the parts of the plan related to expanding services in the community. So this is about trying to stop people having to go into hospital in the first place. NHS England says 20% of admissions could be avoided. And these are the measures that are looking to help tackle that. So the first plank is more joined up care for older people, particularly those with frailty. And that means expanded urgent community response teams, better falls and frailty services all over the country. And the second plank, which got quite a bit of media coverage, is the expansion of the use of virtual wards, which means people who are poorly would be monitored while they remain at home. They're looking at an extra 3,000 virtual ward beds by this autumn, which NHS England says will allow 50,000 people a month to be looked after at home instead of in hospital. And those virtual wards are going to focus on things like frailty and acute respiratory infection in the first instance. So, 
GPs are clearly going to need to be involved in some of this work. I mean, the extent to which they will be will probably vary from area to area, depending on how the current services like virtual wards and frailty services are set up. But again, much like those 5,000 hospital beds, there isn't any mention of how these new community-based initiatives are going to be staffed. The BMA has already sounded the alarm on this. BMA Chair Professor Phil Bamfield has said that without a dedicated workforce and significant funding, a lot of this work is going to fall on GPs. And their teams, which he points out, would push up weights for GP appointments and pose a risk to patient safety given how overstretched practices are. So I think there's some real question marks over how many aspects of this plan are actually going to be implemented on the ground. As ever, you know, the aims of it sound very positive, but as with most things in the NHS at the moment, are there really the people there to deliver it, you know, the clinicians and the staff to do what needs to be done? And I think the real worry is that there just isn't. Steve Barclay also announced a new major conditions strategy last week, which he said was aimed at tackling the burden of disease in England. So what do we know about that? Well, not much at the minute, Um, but it is an interesting idea, I think. This is the big idea. This strategy is to tackle six major health conditions in a bid to increase healthy life expectancy and address health inequalities. So this strategy is going to cover cancer, CVD, which will include stroke and diabetes, chronic respiratory diseases, dementia, mental ill health, and musculoskeletal disorders. So the announcement had very little detail on what the strategy would involve, but the Health and Social Care Secretary said the aim was to shift the the model towards preserving good health and the early detection and treatment of diseases. An interesting thing for GPs is that he said that this move would involve a real shift in the medical workforce to place a greater emphasis on generalist medical skills um, and providing whole person care, which is obviously, you know, what general practice is all about and sort of having more people who are generalists in primary care and in hospitals, he's talking about, that can work alongside specialists. That's sort of a recognition of the fact that people are living longer with multiple health conditions um, and they they don't just need treating for one thing at a time. So there's going to be some call for stakeholders to have input into this strategy. But basically, as I said at the start, the main aim is to tackle variation in outcomes and health. It is interesting that Steve Barclay's talking about this because, as we know, his predecessor, Therese Coffey, who was only in post for a little while under Liz Truss, shelved the publication of a white paper on health disparities that had been produced in the wake of the pandemic. That paper was supposed to form part of the government's levelling up agenda under Boris Johnson. But there's no sign of that ever seeing the light of day. And it seems like this major condition strategy is now going to be the key health policy linked to that levelling up agenda that was in the Conservative manifesto. Clearly, we'll find out more about what that actually means in the coming weeks and months. But Steve Barclay did say it would be very much linked to the forthcoming workforce plan you know, that we've hearing about for ages and, and is apparently coming out soon. One of the other um, key challenges the government's facing is strikes by NHS workers, and they look set to escalate. Uh, have we seen any um, any movement on uh, on industrial action? No, <laughs> no, nothing from the government really. As you say, you know, if anything, things are going to get worse on that front. Uh, this week, Unison has announced another series of strikes by ambulance workers in some trusts on the tenth of February. GMB and Unite Ambulance Workers already have several strikes planned in the coming weeks. The RCN is staging a two-day strike next week on the 6th and 7th of February. And the 6th is when a lot of those GMB and Unite Ambulance Workers will be out as well. So that's going to be a really big day on Monday. The BMA this week announced that it's going to hold a consultative ballot on industrial action of its consultant members. We know the BMA is already balloting junior doctors in a formal vote on uh, industrial action. So this vote of consultants will basically determine whether or not there's an appetite for industrial action at some point. 
And if there is, then the BMA will probably move towards a formal vote of consultants. The union said any action that it did take would be on the basis of falling levels of consultant pay and also the pension tax issue, which we've talked about many times on the podcast before. Steve Barkley, he was in front of the House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee for the first time this week, and he was asked about strikes. His response uh, was very much, we need to let the pay review body process be worked through. Doesn't sound like there's any possibility of a change for this year's pay. And he put everything really on the, the pay review body doing what it needs to do. He said that that would take into account things like rising inflation, the pressure staff are under. I suppose one thing he did say, which was sort of interesting, is that he wanted to see the process completed more quickly this year because, you know, in previous years, we haven't found out about pay rises until the autumn, which should have been in place. One thing to bear in mind is none of the unions are very happy with the pay review process, either those that are are engaged with the NHS pay review body or the BMA, which is engaged with the, the DDRB, the Doctors and Dentists Review Body. They feel that government interference um, by setting a very tight remit and the tight financial constraints on how the pay review bodies can make their decisions basically means it's not independent at all. So, you know, I think if the government is hoping that the pay review bodies are going to be the way out of the strikes, there maybe have to be some clear signs that this is an independent decision that's being made. uh, And even then that might not be enough. So before we go, we've just got time for our regular good news slot. And I'm delighted to introduce GP Online's relatively new senior reporter, Ellie Philpotts, who's been with us since just before Christmas to tell us about this. Hi, Ellie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Emma. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So you wrote our good news story on the website this week, and it's a really lovely story. Why don't you tell us about it? Absolutely. Yeah. So this week we've been heading up north to Middlesbrough, where Dr. Ifdi Lone is a long-serving GP whose incredible recovery from COVID has actually gone on to inspire a folk song that's featured in the BBC. So to tell you a little bit about his background, Dr. Lone is a much-loved GP at Norman Bean Medical Centre, where he's actually spent an incredible 45 years. In 2020, he was sadly hospitalised with severe COVID, but eventually recovered after nine days in a coma. He then went on to play a starring role in the area's vaccine rollout, which is pretty incredible. And it's all of this that's recently inspired a song called Dr. Burrow. So this is by a band called The Young'uns, and they're based just around the corner in Stockton-on-Tees. You might be wondering where the the song actually got its name. Um, So if you know Dr Lone, as many people in the area do, you'll know his passion for Middlesbrough FC. And if you're a football fan or a local, you'll know that this has the nickname Borough. The main songwriter on this, Sean Cooney, has actually been working on the song for the BBC's 21st Century Folk Project. And I spoke to Dr Lone about how he feels about the song, what it means to him, and you can have a read all about that on GP Online. Thanks, Ellie. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks so much to Nick and Ellie. Please do take the time to have a look at GP Insight if you can. If you have any feedback about it, you can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. That's also the address to send any good news stories you'd like us to highlight. I'm back next week when I'm speaking to GP and NHS England's Director of Healthcare Inequalities, Professor Bola Owalabi. It promises to be a really fascinating conversation, so please do join me then.